Good morning to all of you. Um, we are going to be um, going back to Genesis. I think you all um, are aware I'm sort of working my way through, uh, well, I say I, we're working our way through um, the beginning of Genesis. And um, we're going to be taking two stories of Abram and Abraham. Um, um, the first one, his time in Egypt, and then um, his time with Abimelech. And they're very similar stories, which is why I wanted to um, um, deal with them together, even though um, they're different. And I apologize. I I think I probably told the wrong verse to somebody, but it, I actually wanted First John 2, 1 and 2. So anyway, um, I, I'm sure it was my error in communication. So. But those are good verses. There's very few bad verses in the Bible, so they're excellent. You all read those, take them to heart, um, but I won't talk about them at all this morning. So anyway, uh, I'm sorry. My, my daughter wrote this up there, and um, so it's not her fault. So um, Yes, anyway, she wrote them much better than I could. If I've written them up there, you all would be able to see them, and you would wonder what cuneiform writing this was. So... As I begin here, I was thinking about the Dust Bowl. So in the mid-1930s until um, about 1940, the center of the United States was hit by a terrible drought. Each year, the farmers who remained farmers, most of them were picking up and moving to cities, would plow their fields, they would plant their crops, and they would hope that this would be the year that they got the early rains and the latter rains. And every single year until 1941, they suffered disappointment. And so they would plow these fields, and there weren't rains. And even worse than that, there were terrible storms that whipped across the Great Plains, and they pulled the topsoil right off the plains and into the atmosphere. In 1935, there was a day that they called Black Sunday. How many of you all have heard of Black Sunday? Three people, four people. So anyway, um, I don't think any of you all were alive in 1935, um, but it was a terrible storm that whipped up so much dust that people could hardly see. Um, people caught in their yards had to grope their way to find their front doors. Those driving had to stop and creep along because they could hardly see a thing through the dust clouds that were just driving across the roads. And as a result of this devastation that these droughts brought on, Farm families just had to uproot. They had to leave their farms behind, maybe farms that had been in their families for generations, and seek some kind of, of place where they could find work. Um, and this added to the Depression. We think of the Depression as being as a result of a stock market crash. But this terrible effect on rural life just really devastated the center part of this country. And if you've ever read John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, it's a very sad look at a family dealing with these kinds of conditions. And that's where this story starts. So back in, um, back in Bible times, um, we know of many droughts. Um, there is a, an empire called the Akkadian Empire, and we don't know much about the Akkadian Empire. Part of it is because we can't read their writing. So, um, so the, um, the country... Um, Sumer used um, a kind of writing called cuneiform. This is the earliest kind of writing. But um, the Akkadian people, for most of their, their time, they used something that the um, archaeologists called linear script. And I know nothing about it, okay, except they must have all been doctors because nobody can read what they wrote. Uh, and so um, 
But what we know is that this empire existed for about 200 years, from about 2400 B.C. to about 2200 B.C. And then the empire fell. And we think, um, because they had started writing in on the Sumerian scripts later on, um, that a lot of the issues were around um, lack of harvest, lack of food, drought that hit. Um, because um, I don't know if you all know, but like if you if you go to the library, you um, you find um, you find stories and you find biographies and different things like that. But if you went to um, libraries in these ancient places, a lot of what you found were lists of things. Um, that's what archaeologists dig up. They dig up these clay tablets and they're like letters from one person to another saying all the things they send or requesting food aid or all kinds of different things. Um, and so that's, I, I read a book about that recently and it kind of was amusing because they would just sort of have these lists of, of food and slaves and just various things that they sent to somebody else. And I guess it was so people could remember the gifts um, better. So looking through the Bible, we see different times of drought. Um, and so we are going to be starting in Genesis chapter 12. Um, Gen Abraham, well, he was Abram at this point, um, had moved to the land. Um, this was a land that had been promised to him, um, to his descendants. We don't really know what he thought of it when he got there. It doesn't say, you know, and Abram looked out and, boy, everything was wonderful. Um, we just know he got there and that he built an altar. And soon thereafter, a time of drought came. And Abram was a nomad. He traveled from oasis to oasis, from well to well, looking for green places for his flocks and herds to graze. And when there was a dry spell, he couldn't graze his flocks, and so they could die. And so this is where our story begins. So we're going to be starting at Genesis 12, and we're going to read verses 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there. For the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you, that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did not you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So this story begins with a famine in the land. And I'm going to tell you just straight up, this is, this is a dark time in Abram's life. This is not a time that um, he did a lot of scrapbooking about. He didn't like to bring it up later on, and yet it's here for our instruction. So famines were not uncommon in Old Testament times. Um, and even now, if you go to the land of, of Palestine, to Israel, it is a dry country. They use every drop of water they can out of 
the Jordan River for irrigation. And now the Jordan River hardly flows into the Dead Sea anymore. The Dead Sea is drying up as a result of that. Um, we visited Israel about six years ago, and I remember standing at the springs of Dan up in the north of Israel and hearing the water running. And our guide, Yatsuk, said to us, he said, what do you hear? And, and we, we sort of mumbled water, stream, uh, birds. We, we heard different things. And he said, I hear something different from all of you. I hear life. Without water here, there is no life. And in this country, there is no extra water to go around. And so this was a time of famine. This was a time when there wasn't even the little bit of water that they needed to get by. Amos chapter 8, verses 11 through 13, talks about a different kind of famine. It says, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north to the east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. And I think this prophecy is being fulfilled today. There's a lot of stuff out there that purports to be water and isn't. Um, in, there's a book called um, The Phantom Tollbooth. And in The Phantom Tollbooth, the people um, are, are served something called subtraction soup. And the more they eat, the hungrier they get. And the reality is this world gives things that purport to be food, and yet it's subtraction soup. The more you eat of it, the hungrier you get for the real water of life. John 14, verses 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into eternal, everlasting life. And so we have entered a time of drought in this world. There are places in this world that are physically dry. Uh, we were just up in Pennsylvania, and they're very dry up in Pennsylvania. I think Rosalie's uh, daughter had requested prayer for that. Um, but the real question is, where are the places where people hear the word of the Lord and pursue those words with all their hearts? And Jesus says, if you have his water in your life, not only is it going to be there everlastingly, but also it's going to flow out to other people around you. And the question is, when we come to a time of famine in our lives, where do we go? John 6, verses 66 through 69. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. So Jesus had just given some pretty hard sayings. He talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and people just left. They said, you know, this cannibalist talk is just not for us. We're going to go someplace else. And Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the same is true for us today. When we are in a time of famine in our lives, our tendency is to go to Egypt. It's to go to the world and say, I need recharging. I need something for my life. And, and in the Old Testament, Egypt is a type of the world. Um, at the time of Abram, Egypt was 
the preeminent culture. The major powers of that day were uh, the Babylonians, the Hittite Empire, and the Egyptians. And more than that, Egypt was less prone than some of the countries around um, when it came to drought. So Egypt did suffer drought, but they tended not to suffer nearly as badly as what um, as what the surrounding countries did because of the fact they had the Nile River. So they had this huge river. It's the longest river in the world, but it also had a lot of water. And, and so there were times when the Nile got pretty low, but typically they had some water to irrigate with that other places around didn't. Um, and, you know, there, there are places in the Old Testament where God told the Israelites, don't go to Egypt. Um, Genesis 26, 1 and 2 says, There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of Philistines in Gerar. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. Um, I'm not sure. A few other verses maybe after that. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. So, you know, it was not a bad thing that the Israelites had a king one day. The, when Moses gave the law, he put in here specifically a thing that said it's okay to make a king. When you decide you want a king, you can have a king. But the king needs to behave in certain ways. So you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. So the first thing is that God chooses that person. One from among your brethren you shall set as a king over you. You may not set a foreign over you who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. So he was not supposed to get military aid from Egypt, and he was not to uh, multiply horses at all. So I, he, he was not to turn them into a military power. And I think a lot of times these days, the world tells the church that it can help with its issues. Um, so you hear a lot of things these days where um, people will tell churches, you know, you need to improve your presentation. You, you, need to, you need to, you know, fix up this or that about the ways in which you worship. Um, you need to advertise better. You need to crunch numbers. And they'll have all sorts of ways that they think they can help us achieve our mission better. Um, and in many ways, we want to Christianize the things that are in the world and make them work for us as Christians. And yet I think the Bible is clear. Do not go to Egypt when you are struggling. Um, the issue is the mixture of things. The pressure of the world to conform to its form of morality and its tolerate, a tolerance of sinful things is not okay with God. So Abram's sin. So Abram goes to Egypt and he has a plan. Um, and we can make excuses for Abram. We can say, well, you know, he didn't know everything that we know today. He maybe didn't have the Holy Spirit. We, we can all sorts of excuses. But Abram started with a plan. Okay, before he went to Egypt, 
He knew what he was going to say, and he knew what he wanted his wife to say. And this lie that he concocted was motivated by fear and distrust of God. And I'm not certain what Abram thought would come about this. Uh, Would he have left Egypt without his wife if God hadn't intervened? Would he have just said, well, I guess my wife, I'm alive, that's okay. My wife is in Pharaoh's harem, it's okay, you know, at least... You know, God's gotten me through this. I, I don't I don't feel good about this, but, you know. And that's basically what he says. He says to Sarah, if you lie for me, I might be able to make it. And I don't think he thought this through at all. I think he just thought, you know, I I got to go to Egypt because things are dry. And I don't know what's going to happen, but it's not going to be good. And so we're just going to have to lie our way out of this. And we'll just figure it out. Um, and I remember when I was a boy and I would do something bad, my mother would say, you know, why did you do that? And I never had a good reason, I, at least not one that she thought was a good reason. Um, but most of the time I just did something because it seemed like the right thing to do at the time and then turned out it, it wasn't. Um, Abram was not acting as a good husband here. So he let his personal fear allow him to make bad decisions for both himself and his wife. Um, And Abram was passive. We see this later on with the whole Hagar and Ishmael situation. But him concocting this lie for Sarah to tell the Egyptians was him making Sarah do something that was just... It just was wrong. There's just no two ways about it. I don't know what Sarah was supposed to do in this situation, um, but I think she should have just said no. Ephesians 5, 25-31 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present to her her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two they too shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So 99% of this is talking about husbands. And it's dangerous when things get out of balance. So many people these days seem to put a higher emphasis on wives submitting to their husbands than Husbands loving their wives as their own bodies. And if Abram had loved Sarai as he loved himself, there is no way that he would have asked her to do this. But more than that, Sarah should have refused. This was wrong, and Abram knew it. And if he'd been confronted with it, he would have done one of two things. I think he would have either said, you know what? I'm not brave enough to go to Egypt. We're just going to stay in the land, and if we lose flocks, we lose flocks. Or else they would have gone to Egypt and they wouldn't have lied. I trust this morning that I'm speaking to godly men and husbands. 
And if so, we are to be as Christ is to the church. That is to say, regardless of how wonderful or not wonderful our wives are, we are to love them and lead them in holy living by our examples. And we are not to ask them to do things that we wouldn't want to do ourselves. Um, And men are awfully good at coming up with excuses for why they aren't who God has called them to be. Um, But you can't shift that responsibility. If you're a leader, you take responsibility. So Captain Smith of the Titanic um, wasn't the only person to blame for the Titanic sinking. But he was the captain on board, and so the responsibility came back to him. So a final thing in this story that I really notice is that Abram is good at rationalizing. Um, And rationalization is the way in which we make our sins seem less sinful. Um, We don't find Abram speaking in response to Pharaoh, but um, we're going to touch on this story later on. Um, And he he told Abimelech, well, she's my half-sister. Um, if you look a little bit later on at the story of Joseph, you find that his brothers were willing to kill him or sell him as a slave, but they were unwilling to tell an out-and-out lie to their father. So what did they do? They, they took Joseph's coat, and they put blood on it, and they brought the coat to Jacob, and they said, We found this coat. Do you know whose it is? And then they let Jacob do his own jumping to conclusions. Now, did that make what they had done any better? Like, well, we haven't lied to our dad. No, it didn't do anything. They had just done something terrible. But they just weren't willing to, to do this one last thing. First John 1, 8 through 10 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And when we try to make our sins seem less sinful than it is, bad things happen. We tend to continue the sinful behaviors. We even defend them eventually as not being so bad. And we minimize our need for the grace of that Jesus offers us. And that's what John is talking about here. And then often we go down the road of using other sinful behaviors to cover our sin. Sin multiplies over time when it is not confessed and repented of. This passage in 1 John speaks of two things. The first thing is that when we deny our sin, we are not only deceived, we are accusing God of lying because he said that we were all sinners. And the second thing is that there is room for forgiveness when we admit our sin, confess it, and repent of it. So on the banks of Plum Creek, um, there's a little story about how Laura and Mary slid down a straw stack that their father had made, and they made a huge mess of it. And that evening, Pa told them that they weren't to do that anymore because he'd had to pitch it back up, and it took him a lot of work. And the next day, Laura went out and stood by the sack, and her sister Mary was horrified. What are you doing, Mary asked her. Just smelling the straw. Pa didn't say I couldn't smell it, Laura replied. 
Then she began to climb up on the stack. Mary was upset again. But Potts never said we couldn't climb on it, Laura said. He just said we couldn't slide down it. I'm, I'm only climbing. Then Laura began to roll down the stack. When Mary saw that what she was doing, she thought, you know, that looks like fun. And she began to roll down the stack, too. Paul was upset that evening, and he called the girls to him. Laura and Mary said, you girls have been sliding down the straw stack again. Oh, no, they said, we didn't. Were they right? Paul was really upset. He thought they were lying. Then Laura said, we did not slide, Paul. We rolled down it. And that um, apparently made Pa laugh, but um, he didn't punish them that time either, but he made it clear to the girls that they had to stay away from the stack. It didn't really matter how they messed it up. It had to stay in one place so that their livestock had food to eat in wintertime. But that's the way we do it, don't we? We're like, the letter of the law says this, and so I can do this and this and this and this, which aren't really covered by that. So what was Pharaoh's response? So we don't know what happened. Pharaoh figured out that something was up. He had some kind of a plague in his house, and um, I guess maybe he called his astrologers or his, you know, his different people, or, you know, he, he just, you know, what's different about our house now? And it's like, well, it's that new woman. She's a Hebrew woman that you, that you, um, that you took into your household. And so anyway, they, um, they figured out, you know, some people figure these things out, you know, People who have alpha-gal, they, they suddenly discover every time they eat steak that they get a tummy ache or um, something else, you know, they, they figure it out. And so maybe that's the way Pharaoh discovered it. We don't know. Um, but Pharaoh doesn't really seem to have given Abram any time to, to answer questions. He doesn't say, you know, I'd like a full explanation and um, different things like that. He just basically identified Abram's behaviors unseemly, asked him why he behaved like this, and then sent him away without giving him an opportunity to respond. Um, and you can think about Abram stuttering and trying to explain what he'd been thinking, but it didn't really matter what Abram said. Pharaoh wouldn't have seen it as anything more than shallow excuses. Um, and at the end of this story, we do see that God protected both Sarai and Abram. Abram didn't need to be afraid at the beginning of the story or at the end, because God had promised him something, and God does not go back on his promises. So unbelievers are very good at identifying when people who say they're Christians are not behaving like Christians. Um, and they call us hypocrites when we do that, don't they? So First Peter 2, verses, verse 12 says, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Um, and Mennonites have a good name in this country in general. People respect us for doing good work, for being ethical. They think um, um, the ladies are good cooks and good mothers, um, and I think they are. Um, but it's also easy for us to spoil that reputation by doing things that are just not Christ-honoring and Christ-like. So I think Pharaoh must have been a little afraid of Abram. Um, he didn't have him killed, which he could have done. Um, he just expelled him from the land. So Abram never went back to Egypt. I don't know that Abram could have gone back to Egypt. He probably had his passport taken, and he was sent to the, the border, and they said, you know, 
don't call us, we'll call you. And they never called him. So at the end of the story, unfortunately, we see that Abram did not learn. So decades later, Abram made exactly the same mistake. And I don't think it's very healthy for us to go through a situation and not receive punishment. You know, if you get pulled over by a police officer and you're not given a ticket, you feel really good about that. And yet you tend to slow down when you actually get a ticket. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 8 says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. None of us likes to receive punishment, but it is dangerous to live our lives without experiencing consequences for our actions. Um, and I'm convinced that sometimes children and wealthy families turn out really badly because they don't suffer consequences for the stuff that they do. Their parents can buy them their way out of things, God will never lead us into Egypt, but he is always there to lead us out again. So Abraham and Abimelech. So let's jump over to Genesis chapter 20, and we're going to read 16 verses here, the first 16 verses. So this is, um, this is talking about... Um, I have a blank page there. So Genesis 21 through 16. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of his Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So here he's repeating the same lie, isn't he? And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her and said, Lord, Will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you. And you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called his servants, and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you? That you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin. You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. And Abraham said, because I, I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. But, but indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, 
This is your kindness that you should do for me. In every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham. And he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, see, my land is before you. Dwell wherever it pleases you. Then to Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. And this story is more detailed than the other story, but the details are extremely similar, and the story explains them. Maybe at the beginning we understand that when Abraham left his father's house long before he went to Egypt or to Gerar, he made this deal with Sarah, where she would tell people that she was his sister. And it's interesting to me that when asked as to the reason for this, Abraham gives two reasons. First is, he says, well, actually, this is a partial truth. Sarah is my half-sister. Um, and this is a partial truth, but it is a complete lie. And the second thing is that Abraham says that he realized there was no fear of God in this place. And the ironic thing here is that Abimelech was showing much more fear of God than what Abraham ever did. Abimelech is saying, Abraham, I am the man that you should be. I have behaved with integrity to you when you were not behaving that way to me. And Abimelech knew about Sodom and Gomorrah. This happened after Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's interesting that Abimelech says to God in this vision, he says, will you slay a righteous nation also? And he's saying, you know, God, I know that you judge Sodom and Gomorrah, and they deserve to be judged, but we here at Gerar do not deserve to be judged in that way. And God says, I know that, and I am not going to judge you if you take care of the matters. And so Abimelech woke up early, and he did that. God protected Sarah's integrity. Um, and some people have made this into something that it wasn't. The point is not that Abraham and Sarah were right in these lies, or even that Sarah ought to have done this because Abraham wanted her to, but simply that God sometimes keeps us from getting into the trouble that we deserve. Maybe as much as anything else, God was protecting Abimelech here. Abimelech was honest. Abraham and Sarah weren't. And yet God protected Abimelech from the sin that he might have done. And then Abimelech reprimanded Abraham. God had told Abimelech that Abraham was a prophet, and Abimelech was disappointed in the behavior of a prophet of God. He asked Abraham a series of questions that basically asked Abraham why he, Abraham, would say and act in a way that would lead other people into sin if he was really a follower of God. I don't know if Abraham learned his lesson here, but I think he probably did. As I've said before, as much as we hate it, we need to be called out for the wrong in our lives. Otherwise, we will continue to repeat it and we'll continue to fall into the same path. Sometimes it is sinners who are the ones who identify our lives as not being in accordance with what we claim. So Abimelech gave Abraham and Sarah a gift. Um, to our eyes, Abimelech was the one who had been injured. 
He had been deceived, had almost entered into a sinful relationship on this deception. But he wanted to be certain that everyone knew that this deed was done unintentionally. So he gave a bunch of livestock, he gave a thousand pieces of silver, and he gave them the right to dwell anywhere in the land. So points that I would like to pay attention to, pay attention to in these two stories. Um, first of all, we need to be careful where we go when we experience famine. So every, every one of us experiences time when we feel dry. Um, writers talk about writer's block times when they feel like they can't write anything. Um, it isn't that they can't write. They, can, they could write um, anything. They just can't write anything that seems worthwhile. Um, and the question is, what do we do when we feel stagnated? We aren't getting anything from church. We aren't getting anything from our personal worship time. And what is really clear is that we should not go to Egypt when we're feeling this, this, uh, this way. So I don't want to draw this out too, too far. You know, if you're, you know, we're talking about spiritual matters here. If, if your gallbladder is acting up, go see a surgeon, even if he's not a Christian. Um, if your car needs work, go to a mechanic, um, even if he's not a Christian. It's, we're talking about spiritual things here. Second thing is that we need to avoid situations where we are going to struggle to maintain our Christian testimony. Abraham was not strong enough to, to serve God in these situations. And, you know, if you know that there's a place where you're going to struggle to stand for Jesus, don't go to that place. If you feel like you can, you know, maybe it's okay. The third thing is that we need to pay attention to our tendency to rationalize our behaviors. Um, none of us, I don't think, none of us men are going to try to pass our wives off as our sisters. Um, I can't imagine a situation where you would do that. Um, but there are probably a lot of other times where we could tell partial truths in order to not, uh, not get into trouble. Um, I remember when Bill Clinton was talking about some sinful behavior. And uh, in, in rationalizing this, he made the statement, it all depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. As though, you know, if you just had a little def different definition. So somebody had asked him if he was having an affair, and he said no. But, but he was saying, well, I had an affair, but I'm not currently having it this exact instant. So somehow, um, if we're falling back on telling ourselves stories about how the things we're doing aren't totally wrong, bad, um, because somebody just didn't ask us exactly the right question, then we're, we are the problem. So three ways that we rationalize sin, um, and then we're going to jump to a conclusion here. So um, first thing is we focus on the letter of the law. And I think when we think of the letter of the law, we think of people who are really legalistic, trying to get everybody to be extra good. Um, but people who focus on the letter, letter of the law can also say that something that we know God intends for us to avoid is not actually spoken against in Scripture. So Abraham in this story had spoken the truth. Sarah was his sister but he hadn't spoken all of the truth. The second thing is that we try to explain away the things that God asks us to do. If we don't understand the reasons behind what God has asked us to do, we can doubt that he really wants us to do what he says in his word. So the serpent asked Eve in the garden, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So Satan was trying to get Eve to believe that God had no reason behind this rule 
And more so, he wanted Eve to doubt that God wanted the best for Eve. And then the third thing is that we emphasize the good things that we do. Sure, we did something bad, but it's more than balanced by the fact that we go to church and we help out with church fundraising and vacation Bible school and whatever else. And, you know, that's a, that's a Muslim way of looking at things. Muslim people feel like at the end of our lives, there's going to be a balance and your good things go on one side and your bad things go on the other side. But, but that's not what Jesus has called us to. He's called us to self-denial, to cross-bearing, and to loving everyone the way that he loved us. So we're never going to be perfect in this life, but we need to be honest when we fall down, identify our sinful behaviors, confess them to the people we sinned against, and repent of them. So in 1939, Hitler invaded Poland. Um, Just the year before that, he had invaded Czechoslovakia, saying that the citizens were part of Germany's protectorate. And one of the big reasons that he said he was invading Poland was that Polish citizens were persecuting people of German heritage. And it was interesting to me as I was thinking about that, that this is almost exactly the same reason that Vladimir Putin said that he was invading Ukraine. He said, people who are Russian in Ukraine are not treated well, and we need to, we need to help take care of that. And also there's Nazis in Ukraine. 1 John 2, 1 through 6 says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whosoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk, just as he walked. And I want to finish up with the understanding that our goal is holiness. Our goal is perfection. Jesus said in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And maybe it feels like an impossible goal, but we can grow closer to him every day. This last passage speaks to us that we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus is someone who speaks for us when we sin. When we identify sin in our lives, realize that we've been rationalizing things that were wrong, we can put into place things like confession and repentance and move forward. And Jesus is faithful.